Welcome to the Thrive Church weekly message. We hope that you enjoy this podcast and we hope that it blesses you. For any more information on this sermon or any additional resources, visit us at thrivechurch.co.nz. And now I feel with all the expectation, my arousal level in my brain's like, <laughs> so we definitely need to do this settling practice. Whew. But um, I'll just let you know, I'm um, an occupational therapist. I work at an early intervention centre and I also parent a little three and a half year old monkey. <laughs> He's awesome. Um yeah, and I have lots of family around this place, Lynn and Peter, parents-in-law. So that's a bit about me and where I'm coming from. And I really love brains. I love to talk about brains. Um, and I really, um, I love the facts, but I also love um, the kind of beauty of um, of brains and of the reflection that we can see amongst all of um our bodies and the creation around us and the entire expanding universe. Um, I love, yeah, learning about that, but then seeing kind of the beauty of that as well. So let's just start um, with a prayer, a different kind of prayer that I would like to um, lead you through. So I just invite you to put both your feet flat on the ground Um, And maybe straighten up your back because it's kind of a relaxing kind of thing, but the intent is not for you to fall asleep. So maybe tuck your chin in as well. It kind of just lengthens the back of your neck there. You can turn your gaze down or if you're comfortable closing your eyes. And just feel your body sitting on the seat, letting the chair hold you, letting the earth hold you with your feet connected to it. And start to bring your attention to the breath that's moving in and out of your body. Just noticing it. Maybe noticing where you feel the breath the most. Maybe that's around your stomach and your diaphragm or your ribs moving up and moving down or pressing into the chair at your back or maybe you feel your breath around your heart and your chest you could even place one hand on your chest and one hand on your tummy if you want to feel that rhythm or maybe for you it's easier to notice it at the nostrils And notice as it comes in that it's kind of cold and as it moves out that it's kind of warm. And something you might notice is that as we're doing this, thoughts come into your mind. And whatever kind of thoughts they are, whether they're about the praise and worship that just happened or who on earth this person is in front of you or maybe this week or this weekend 
Or maybe you're thinking about tomorrow. Maybe just naming that thought as planning, worrying, imagining. And very gently and kindly bringing your attention back to your breath. And I'm going to read you a psalm, just one line, and I'll say it five times, and I'll leave some space in between each line where you can continue to come back to your breath, or maybe you want to say the prayer in your head, or if you really want to, you can say it out loud. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still. Amen. So just opening your eyes when you're ready. So maybe for some of you, that might be the second time that you've tried that today. Um, and hopefully you can get a sense of that really um, doing something actually in your nervous system that we'll come back to a bit later on. But I kind of wanted to open with that, um, partly for you and partly for me. <laughs> I need it too. Um, it's something I've been learning a lot about lately and um, just getting us ready for um, absorbing some information and hopefully something that sits in your heart as well. So we're going to talk about brains, and I want to start with kind of an overview of the hierarchy of how brains function, and a little bit about how messages travel around your body um, and give you information from inside your body and from the world around you. Um, and I'll teach you a little um, model that you can take with you so that you can teach everyone around you about their brains, including your children. Um, I'm just going to turn this around. And I have found that this is a good way to um, read behaviour as communication, whether you're reading your child, your small child's behaviour or your adolescent's behaviour or maybe your own behaviour. I was just saying to someone before, um, some old friends came up to me after the first service and we were chatting about brains and stuff. And um, I said, you know, it's funny. I practised for like 10 years as a paediatric occupational therapist before I had a kid. Um, and, and when I was pregnant, everyone was like, oh, your child's going to be so lucky. Uh, and then I had a child and whew, <laughs> that was not what I was expecting. Um, and I, you know, all these, um, all these uh, traumas that I hadn't dealt with from my own childhood were like, hello, you haven't dealt with me. And I was like, uh, can you just go back on the shelf for a while? <laughs> um, but yeah, we were, we were just talking about... Um, 
my gosh, I totally lost my train of thought there. Um, how important oh, it is to turn that lens on yourself. That's what I was thinking about. So I'd practice for 10 years, always saying, you know, our parents, reading behavior as communication, advocating for children, advocating for children, advocating for children. Then I became a parent and I was like, oh yeah, I have one of these nervous system thingies too. I should probably like turn that lens on myself and, um, and maybe be kind um, to myself and maybe be a bit curious about the behaviours that I <laughs> see myself doing that I don't really like. So let's go through the hierarchy of brain function and just put your hand up like this and we're going to talk about um, how brain works. Look, this is not too scary. You can all do it. <laughs> right, so down here at the wrist where the wrist meets the hand is the brain stem. Okay, it's inside your head actually. It's not literally in your wrist. And um, that is what is carrying information and energy from within your own body and from the world around you up the spinal cord and into the brain, right? So it comes in here. And it's good to be aware that actually all information and energy has to pass through these lower levels of the brain. They're very old, they're very primal in charge of our survival and our basic rhythms. And then in the middle of the brain, if you fold your thumb over like that, we have the limbic system. And ideally you'd actually have two because you have a left and a right side. And the limbic system is kind of like our emotional brain. Um, and if you consider things that pretty much most mammals can do, your limbic system's in charge of. So um, feelings, pleasure, reward systems are all kind of housed in the limbic system of the brain. And then if you wrap your fingers over the top, that's the cortex. So that's kind of the wrinkly part of the brain that when you look at a picture of a brain and you see this pink wrinkly thing that you think of, um, the cortex is the kind of the thinking brain and it's where our highest um, level of functioning happens. It's kind of what makes us human. It gives us the ability to plan and problem solve um, and reflect and analyse and rationalise. Um, and those two um, fingernails actually of your two middle, like your ring finger and your middle finger, where they touch the thumb is a really important um, neural network that's connecting your prefrontal cortex, which is your highest, most rational part of the brain, to your emotional part of your brain, right? So just tuck that piece of information away and we'll come back to it when we're going through development because what we're aiming for is integration over the huge course of development. All right. So we'll see, I, um, I love that you can see these little patterns moving through these layers of the brain. So the bottom part's kind of in charge of the, the doing, the middle part's kind of in charge of the feeling, and the top part's in charge of the thinking. And you see this reflected within development. You see it reflected in those first early years, but you also see it across development. So in, approximately seven year cycles. You'll see the first seven years is all about doing. The second seven years is mostly about coming into the feeling sense. And then adolescence is about coming into the thinking or our consciousness and ability to reflect and think about thinking. Um, so it's kind of amazing that you see these um, patterns. And actually, Mitch and I were just talking, actually, even once you become a fully-fledged adult, <laughs> whenever that happens. Um, <laughs> largely, we, we actually do function as well um, 
in terms of um, personalities and ways of being and our kind of soul's way home as um, people who tend to be more um, heart responders, head responders or body and gut responders. And again, you see those layers of the brain reflected, which I think is just beautiful and shows us how everything is connected and part of this big story and um, within the context of relationship. I think it's really amazing. So oh, there's a beautiful picture of a brain. Um, this is by an, an artist. He had an exhibition actually last year in, or the year before in New York of all his drawings. Very, very old before we even had the ability to look inside a living person's skull and see what their brain was actually doing. So he did a pretty good job. Um, you can see how many connections <laughs> there are in the brain, more than you could count. So how do we form these connections? We're born with about 86 billion neurons, which are little brain cells. Um, but actually, we don't start... Um, they have sort of rudimentary connections, but when we're born um, is when we start to really map down these pathways um, and then we insulate these pathways um, so that we can messages can travel down them much quicker. So we're born actually kind of um, prematurely, really, all humans are um, because of us walking on two legs. It means that we have um, a more narrow birth canal relative to the size of our baby's brains, which for a human being, we have, you know, a lot of, a lot more thinking occurring in our brains than other animals. <laughs> um, so for the baby to be able to come out the birth canal, it has to come out before um, the brain development that most other mammals have had prior to birth has occurred. So it comes out with these 86 billion neurons and then it has this period, this thousand days from conception to the thousandth day-ish um, of mapping down all these neural pathways. So the connections that are going between these neurons. And this is the time when um, the brain is forming the templates for, okay, what kind of environment do I need to prepare myself to live in? Is it chaotic or is it calm? Is it scary and do I need to be really vigilant all the time or can I relax and know that um, somebody's going to meet my needs? And as humans, we're, our way of surviving is to make somebody fall in love with us. It's through relationship. We're not like other mammals that can stand up and walk a few hours after we're born. I mean, obviously, they do need some protection. <laughs> but, you know, it's much, much longer time. And really, our way is to form this strong attachment with a primary caregiver um, to enable our survival. So these pathways, how do they form? It's a bit like what's called a desire path. If you see in the natural world um, a footpath and there's a corner and someone's kind of walked over the grass because they couldn't be bothered doing a sharp angle or uh, you're up a hill and I go walking in the Port Hills, it's beautiful and there's lots of tussock grasses and there's heaps of desire paths and it's really fun because you'll see someone decided, eh, I don't want to follow this one, I want to go over here and so they made a little path through the tussock and then I came along and followed them and then the person after me came along and they saw that path and they walked it as well and slowly the grass kind of got dampened down and squished down into a path and then eventually when someone walks on that path it's easier for them because we've all traveled on it before and that's kind of what it's like in your nervous system when you map a pathway down 
It's like an electrical wire that uh, every time the message travels down it, this fatty sheath comes over the top like insulation, and the message can travel along that um, tail of the neuron to the next neuron with greater ease and quicker. Something also to bear in mind, there's a little saying they say, um, neurons that fire together, wire together. And you'll notice this in kids. Um, <laughs> when I do something once with my son, then he's like, eh, we're walking on the Port Hills. Where's my cheese cut into hearts? And I'm like, whoa, we did that once. <laughs> you know, but it shows you how quick those associations <laughs> can be. Because for him, the pathway of going for a walk with mummy is associated with cheese cut into hearts, <laughs> right? And if I kept mapping that down, those would become really strong for him. But I say to him, that was a one-time thing. <laughs> mummy had lots of time that morning. <laughs> um, yeah, it's pretty amazing, but really important to bear in mind because when the brain is forming these, um, these templates, it's actually um, creating paths that then are going to be linked up to each other. Um, and it's always looking for these templates of where can I hang this experience on? What have I had before that I can draw from? Um, or do I need to be really alert because this is a brand new novel, um, unfamiliar experience, in which case um, we're going to be more alert. Um, another thing to bear in mind is um, it's a bit like a set of scales. So if, you're, um, if you are really alert, that means your brainstem is really um, activated, right? And if the brainstem is activated, then the cortex is not very easy to access. If the brainstem is calm, like a set of scales, then the cortex can really come back online. Um, and that is really important um, with when you're working with children, but actually also for yourself when you feel, Daniel Siegel, he calls this flipping your lid, right? Like this. So when you have this um, intense experience that you um, increases your arousal level, you flip your lid as in you don't have the access to that cortex anymore. You're reacting from an emotional or maybe even a brainstem level um, reaction instead of a response. And that's one of the things that the, what, how we prayed at the beginning um, can do is create a bit of space between this um, thing that happens in our response instead of it being like that, that we create the thing that happens, space, our response. Um, so we have this kind of first thousand days that... Um, shapes the brain's architecture, basically gets it ready for whatever environment it perceives that it needs to be prepared for. Um, and then across that course of the first seven years of life, we're really um, schooling our lower senses or our inner senses that build this picture of the physical sense of self. And that comes through movement and balance and touch and what I call a sense of life, which is all those basic rhythms um, excuse me, that allow us um, to function. So those quite brainstem rhythms, your heart rate, your breathing, your sleep-wake cycle, your appetite, all um, 
run on rhythms. And you'll notice when your sense of life is out of sync, that's when you are like, oh, that's what a sense of life is. <laughs> At the moment, I don't have it. <laughs> it's out of sync. Um, because when these rhythms are ticking along, we feel uh, a bit more okay in ourselves. Um, and the rhythms will often um, bump up against each other. So if you're sick, it's messing with your sleep-wake cycle, it's messing with your appetite, right? Um, then maybe your breathing starts to get a bit out of sync because your nose is all stuffy and you feel just generally like your sense of life is kind of depleted. Or interoception, your digestion sits within that as well, also going on rhythms. Um, so we also, I think I didn't mention this before, but it's a very important part of um, neurological development is that we have this mapping, then we also have pruning. Right, so after we've um, myelinated these connections or insulated these connections, we start to prune away um, what we're not really using. It's a very use-dependent organ, the brain. So if we're not using a pathway, it's like, okay, well, we'll make some space and just prune it, much like you would do pruning in a garden. And this is the thing that allows us to be so adaptable as a species. <clears throat> because we're able um, to be born into an environment and for our genes to be shaped by that environment to enable our best survival wherever that might be. Um, it's also such a, an amazing strength because it gives us this adaptability, but a, a huge uh, vulnerability as well. Because um, as you can imagine, not every environment is, um, is ideal um, and that can... Um, cause some challenges because um, as we move through life, those lower layers of the brain, there's a picture of a, a tree in the shape of a head, whoever's in charge of this. I thought this was a great picture. It's actually like a Pink Floyd album. No one can find it. Anyway, it was a good picture of um, the lower layers of the brain being much harder to change when you're older, whereas there's a lot of what they call plasticity or ability to change in the cortex. Yeah. I thought that was a good picture of, um, you know, the trunk is much harder to change, isn't it? But those branches up the top have a lot of um, capacity for rewiring once you're older. Thankfully, you can, um, you can rewire things, especially in your cortex as an adult, um, and therefore have that sort of cortical control of those lower areas. So it's not completely hopeless, but good to bear in mind. <laughs> Um, so we have this first seven years um, where a sense of rhythm is so important. Um, and I, th I was just chatting to Lynn before about the, the beautiful inherent um, reverence that you know an under seven-year-old has for especially the natural world. And they're not in a hurry. They're very present. They're very much about doing, very much about imitating. And they offer us this opportunity to kind of slow down and actually look at the things around us that are kind of pointing our souls home. I think I've definitely found that having a baby has given me a lot of um, signposts to my soul's way home. Um, then we have the middle years, um, so from seven to the period of when adolescence begins. Adolescence, or pu puberty, sort of kicks that off, and then we head into adolescence. Um, and this is a time when we um, 
begin developing those senses that tell us about the world around us and how we actually fit into that. So actually our, um, our sense of vision and our taste and our smell, they don't complete really until those middle years. And those are the, um, that's when the feeling sense really starts to develop and we start to be able to see things from different perspectives around that age. Um, and, and leaning more towards the period of adolescence, we start to realise that maybe the authority figures in our life, well, they actually they got their knowledge from somewhere. Where did they get it from? Can it be trusted? Do I definitely agree with that? Which we push into much more in adolescence, but the sort of... It starts beginning at the end of these middle years. Um, and, and when I say that sort of feeling aspect has developed, they kind of um, have this ability to start seeing things from another perspective and a different angle, but it's much more in the, um, the sort of sense of it. It's not over-intellectualised. Um, when we get older, that, glimmers of it within adolescence and then certainly as adults we tend to really over intellectualize things um, and I think some of the beauty of the middle years is that they're really quite in tune with that sort of soul quality and, and feeling aspect um, and I had a beautiful quote from Brene Brown um, she said um, in one of her most recent books who we are and how we engage with the world are much stronger predictors of how our children will do than what we know about parenting. And I think that's it's beautiful because um, there are so many parenting philosophies out there that you can subscribe to. Um, and, and what she's saying is um, who you are and how you make sense of your own story and your own history and then how you bring that into your present with your child and how you respond to them. That means so much more than you know, I'm subscribing to this particular set of ways of doing things, um, who you are and how you engage with the world is a much stronger predictor. Uh, and then we get to adolescence. Just let me know if I'm going too fast. It's, I don't have a lot of time. It's a small miracle that we can fit <laughs> this into the amount of time here. Um, but if you have any questions, just wave around and ask them as well, by the way. I like questions. Um, so we reached the period of adolescence, and this is really, I um, have had to squeeze this into a very small amount of time. This I could talk about for more than a day. Um, so this is where we really come into that um, our own thinking and our ability to think about thinking. Um, and it's kind of a confusing time because we're, we're coming into this way of thinking and this consciousness and the self-consciousness, awareness of ourselves, awareness of our mind, awareness of the minds of others and how maybe we can, our mind can connect with another mind. Um, but at the same time, there's this remodeling and rewiring of the cortex that is happening. And because that's happening, sometimes it can be thrown offline, which means that um, an adolescent can be reacting from um, the emotional part of their brain that we talked about, that limbic system, not necessarily having the... Um, those things that belong um, in the prefrontal cortex, like reflection and problem solving and seeing a much bigger picture. What is um, a great strategy for um, adolescents to um, 
begin learning for themselves is to start practicing that, start integrating that um, as the prefrontal cortex is really coming online, integrating it with the limbic system through practices um, that allow a tiny bit of space between something that happens and our reaction to it, um, or a thought or a feeling or a sensation that arises in the body, and then what we do about it. So there's a lot of things that are going on in the brain, and um, teenage years have kind of got this bad rap of um, having, you know, raging hormones and just being so difficult. And um, I was quite keen to um, to find um, a body of work that looked at what is the purpose actually of this. There must be a purpose. This doesn't just happen for no reason. And Dr. Daniel Siegel, he um, has written a book called Brainstorm that um, really helped me to understand it in order to explain more to others about this rewiring of um, the cortex that's happening and also the changes that are occurring, like... Um, Oh, that, oh, we'll go on to that in the next slide, but let me just go to the amygdala, um, which is more active. The amygdala is found in the um, limbic system. It's a tiny little almond-shaped um, piece of your brain that is responsible for a number of um, things in regards to emotion, but primarily um, is very responsive to fear and anger, and it's more active during the teenage years. And on the next slide, you'll see that there are a lot of changes in dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter. Neurotransmitter just means a chemical messenger in your body that takes the message from one neuron to the next neuron. So where the neurons join up, there's like less than a hair's gap or, um, that they have to pass a message to the next neuron. And what they do is the little dendrites, like little branch, teeny tiny branches, release these neurotransmitters and the neurons that are um, up against... Um, those little dendrites are going to pick up that message or absorb that neurotransmitter and keep the message going along. That's what dopamine is. It's one of the um, the really important um, chemical messengers in our body. So in our adolescence, we have a lower baseline for dopamine, which means that it takes less for us to um, kind of sense it. Um, but we also have um, a higher release of dopamine when we're engaging in um, a novel or perhaps um, risky behaviour. So it's really um, activating the pleasure and reward loops in the brain because um, that's where dopamine, um, that's where it has an effect in that limbic level that we have these pleasure and reward loops. And we actually release dopamine even with the anticipation of something that will be pleasurable or provide a reward to the brain. So even when we're planning you know, whatever we're going to engage in that's um, going to be exciting, the dopamine is being released with that. It plays a huge role in our um, motivation. Um, and it is part of um, why you might see impulsive um, behaviour because the reward system is so strong. <laughs> that drive for reward um, is really strong and that, that's what makes things like addictions so difficult because it's lower in the brain and you might be able to see something logical but it's not really your logical brain that is in charge of you responding to that or not. Um, it's these lower reward loops in your um in your limbic system, um, and that's why it's important to um, try integrating those different layers. 
So that's why we might see impulsivity. We might also see a, a greater susceptibility to addictions in that time um, because of the um, sort of dopamine hit that your brain gets through engaging in the use of stuff like drugs. Um, and then you have this kind of um, plummeting and skyrocketing of dopamine that comes with engaging in that. And, and of course, the anticipation of that reward of the um, pleasure response in the brain. And something that um, I don't think a lot of people know about that happens in adolescence is um, something called hyperrationality, which is also to do with the cortical architecture and the dopamine response in the brain. And this is where an adolescent um, will actually pre-plan something and you'll think, oh, what? Like, why did you plan to do this dumb thing? <laughs> but actually what's happening is that their brain um, has weighed it up and has a positive bias towards the benefit of that thing um, as opposed to the negative outcomes of it. So they're um, leaning into that positive bias and it makes them more likely to engage in maybe a risky behaviour and not really pay a lot of attention to the negative consequences because they're putting this positive bias on the good things that might come out of it. And this is much more um, likely to occur in the context of peer relationships. So you can see how that can <laughs> be very challenging. Um, this is a time in life where, um, again, uh, with this rewiring that's occurring in the cortex, we have a lot of pruning going on. Um, and what can happen is that during this pruning process, um, you can unmask some vulnerabilities or um, genetic or epigenetic um, fragilities that might be there within a person. Um, so, for example, if um, it could be that there was a, already a genetic tendency or maybe an early environment kind of um, switched a gene on, that's kind of what epigenetics is, just like little genetic changes that um, the environment has shaped um, a gene to switch on or switch off uh, based on a particular experience. Um, and this is how we might get an early onset of mental illness that becomes uncovered within the adolescent years because of this pruning process that's occurring. Um, and probably the most important thing to bear in mind as people supporting other people, uh, especially adolescents, is that um, if while this pruning is occurring, if the brain is kind of bathed in um, stress hormones, it makes the pruning worse, um, which you really don't want to happen. <laughs> you want to keep some good pathways there. And like I say, you want the layers of the brain to be integrated. Um, so you don't want to prune away the pathways that are going to be helpful for um, restoring um, mental health. Um, so it's really important to support people. And even though um, you might not be able to make that mental illness go away, you can create uh, an environment that reduces the stress that then enables the person to um, unlock some strategies maybe that for them works really well. So just to bear in mind, it's a um, pretty big um, issue in our society, New Zealand especially. Um, and so when I was preparing um, t to speak to some guys from, or, and a few girls <laughs> from Attitude um, who present in schools on to teenagers, and um, I was really looking for um, some positive 
positive elements to the adolescent years because often um, it's just described in quite a negative light. And so Dan Siegel, he um, he has this cheesy acronym. He's full of great cheesy acronyms. It's part of why I really love him. Um, and he's so excited to talk about brains too. <laughs> um, and so he talks about the emotional spark in an adolescent. So because this um, limbic system is more um, active and the cortex is kind of being thrown offline, so it's, you know, um, more out in the open there, we're getting reactions from it. There is also the benefit of it is that we get this beautiful emotional intensity in things, which can actually be really great when we've um, shut that down. If we if we learn to kind of shut down our difficult feelings, the, um, the downside of that is that we actually cut ourselves off from the really good feelings too. Um, so it's good to be reminded that emotional intensity is not all that bad, and emotions can be a really good compass for... Um, noticing the important aspects of our For any more information on this sermon or any additional resources, visit us at thrivechurch.co.nz. A positive or a negative emotional experience is kind of unpacking that as the important part. So I think teenagers kind of give us that opportunity and they also remind us of the importance of relationships and development. This is it's such an important part of an individual's development these adolescent years, but it's also such an important part of our collective development as a, um, a species. Um, so they remind us, you know, that it's important to um, connect with other people. And part of this um, leaning into their peers and turning away from their primary attachment figures is to kind of widen um, the gene pool as biologically where that drive comes from. So it makes sense that you want to meet a partner um, and if you're eventually going to have a baby with said partner, that, that the gene pool is um, wider than your immediate family. Um, so that's kind of where that comes from. Um, teenagers tending to... Um, lean into their peer group more so than their um, parental attachment figures. A side note on that, it is really important, um, and we'll talk about um, relational milieus at the end a little bit, but it is something that can be really um, wonderful throughout the adolescent period um, because a child might be shifting from... Um, the primary attachment figure to the peer group is to not disconnect them from the um, ability to have input from older generations. It might not be the parent figure that they want to turn to, but there is a lot that we can gain from um, continuing relationships with um, people that are across the age range, particularly when you're an adolescent. So maybe they connect with an auntie or an uncle or a good friend or a youth leader or some, or a teacher. Um, it's just, yeah, really um, healthy to have that and just bear in mind it probably won't be the parent. <laughs> probably will be someone else. Um, and novelty seeking and creative exploration, I think this is wonderful. It's an opportunity for us to be reminded how important it is to push back against the status quo, right? That things that we've done, uh, the way that we've always done things isn't necessarily the way that we should keep doing things. Um, and I think adolescence brings us that gift to really um, reflect on that and go, huh, Actually, is this the best way? Maybe, you know, and maybe also um, inspires us uh, to be a bit more, um, to have a bit more activism in our approach to what's going on around us in the world as well. So, 
how are we doing for time? <laughs> Not much time left. But we'll go on to um, kind of knowing how the brain works, I think, gives us insight and um, the ability to understand more deeply another person and also ourselves. I think that's why I love it so much. I, I feel like as a person, I long to be understood um, and that's why I love my job so much because I work with children who are constantly misunderstood and I love um, being able to peel back some layers and shed some light and bring some understanding and um, I think that's what I get out of learning about the brain and learning about the world around me is that you can offer that deep understanding to people. Um, and these are some things that I've been thinking about lately um, in regard to our neurobiology and how that fits or doesn't fit with our sociocultural climate. Um, we've had a lot of um, we've had a lot of changes since um, you know since Jesus was around, right? <laughs> a lot of changes in the church, a lot of changes in our culture, a lot of um, sort of revolutions that changed things um, and um, movements that altered how we, um, how we are and how we do things. Um, and I think that's really important to reflect um, how our neurobiology is in sync with that or not. Um, and a couple of things that are really difficult for us, particularly in um, the, the Western world, really, is this disintegration of our relationships. We're very isolated. We build little fences around our quarter acre sections and don't connect with the people around us. Um, and when I became a mother, this was pretty evident to me that I was so lonely, you know, and there's lots of groups, but that takes a lot of your energy. If it's not just naturally there and you're having a rough time, you're probably not going to be the one who's like, yeah, I'm going to go out and meet people. Um, you know, you want that to be already cultivated around you. Um, and I think that's really lacking in our um, current sociocultural climate, that we're not connected um, to other people. Um, and another thing that they all kind of feed into each other that we really have to deal with is the speed of technology and it's um, how that has impacted us. Um, and our brains have a thousand-year lag on their ability to catch up with the socio-cultural changes that have occurred. So we have these um, kind of um, physical structures that respond in a particular way. For example, we still get um, a reward um, in our brain for eating salty and fatty foods because a long time ago that was really useful when you were a a human who didn't have a supermarket down the road. <laughs> but now you have a supermarket right there and you can access sweet and salty and fatty foods which all reward your brain as easy as anything and your brain's still responding from how I responded a thousand years ago but your socio-cultural climate is completely different. I think that's really important to um, pay attention to and and technology is kind of similar. We haven't had the chance to do a great deal of research either. We've done we've done quite a bit now on TV and brains. We haven't done a lot on um, the rest of technology. <laughs> and we do. We also get 
uh, a reward for um, learning information. And so, you know, the internet came around and we were able to access information at, literally at the tips of our fingers, and that was rewarding our brain. And then quickly it morphed into, hey, you can, conne you can connect with other people <laughs> via this thing, right? But actually it's hijacking those reward systems and hijacking our need for a relationship and really just giving us this surface level um, nothingness when what we're longing for is deep connection and deep like being understood. So those are some questions I'm wrestling with and, and one of the um, greatest practices that I've found um, in the last year or two, um, I actually started off on kind of like a mindfulness journey and then I um, did this course last year and suddenly learnt about these um, really ancient practices that sit within um, the um, Christian philosophy that I uh, really resonated with me um, and, and kind of added a layer of transcendence that my soul was kind of longing for. Um, and that's what we did at the beginning, one kind of prayer. And there's these other kinds of prayer just on the next, the last slide. Um, that all give us different opportunities. One of them, the one we did at the beginning was kind of hinting at centering prayer, but in that you normally pick um, a sort of sacred word or a symbol that you come back to. Um, and every time your mind wanders, you come back to your sacred word. And the beautiful thing about it is that you can't do it wrong because your mind will wonder. I guarantee it will wonder 20,000 times in 10 minutes. But every time you bring it back to your sacred word or a sacred symbol is one more time that you return to God. And I think that for me is, um, is pretty amazing. And then what I use as a mum all the time, which I think we'll finish with, is the breath prayer, <laughs> which um, also comes from, that's from ancient, um, well not as ancient, but Greek, Greek and Russian Orthodox churches developed this breath prayer where um, they would say uh, on the in-breath um, the, what they would call God, so the name that you're most comfortable with, and then on the um, out-breath would be the um, petition or um, request. So I think the first one was, um, Lord in heaven, have mercy on me, which then got shortened to Lord mercy with the in and out-breath. And the one I use um, as a mum all the time is Jesus, peace. <laughs> Or maybe you want patience. I don't know. <laughs> um, and the other two, maybe you just want to Google those. The welcome and prayer is amazing um, for if you have an intense emotional experience, you sink into the feelings and sensations and commentaries in your body, and then you just say welcome. You know, if you're feeling that intense anxiety in your stomach, you might say welcome, and you're welcoming the Holy Spirit basically to that particular place. And then there's a couple of statements that you say at the end of it about um, letting go. <laughs> um, and the examen is the most beautiful prayer of gratitude that I've ever found, and it's described as rummaging for God, which sits well with me. I'm constantly rummaging for God um, and, or praying backwards through your day. So you go through your whole day and, um, and are thankful for um, each thing that happened, and then you use your emotions as the index card for what are the poignant things in this day that I maybe need to um, let go of or, um, you know, invite God into or um, pray for <laughs> grace or, you know, and, um, and then moving into the next fresh day. Um, so some beautiful um, practices that really allow that space to come in. We're in a world of busyness and loudness and constant filling of every single space. 
this is the kind of prayer that actually creates a space. Um, and Mother Teresa, she is really big on this, really into her centering prayer. And she was saying, you don't see the fruits then in your prayer. It's afterwards. When you're returning to these sacred moments, um, then the rest of your life you see um, the patience and the goodness and the faithfulness and the self-control emerging because you have nourished um, a, a deep communion with um, with God. So for me that's um, very resonant. And so I will just finish with a little breath prayer with you all. So I just invite you again to put, just put your feet on the ground to let your body know that you're not about to um, run away, although very soon you will be able to stand up. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, having a nice upright posture um, and looking with your gaze down or closing your eyes and just bringing to mind the word that you are most comfortable with um, that describes how you um, feel about God or uh, what name you would like to call God. And then thinking of one word that, um, that summarizes what you currently um, need or would like from God. So like I said, mine was Jesus, peace. And just... Coming back to those words as you breathe in, your name for God, and as you breathe out, your request. Just slowly coming back to this space. I know that was quick, but sometimes when you're a parent, actually you just need that really, really, really quick way of <laughs> praying and being. Um, but what you're actually doing is switching on your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest branch of your autonomic nervous system. The other branch of that is your sympathetic, um, which is your kind of fight or flight response. So the more you can teach your nervous system turn this brakes on instead of just always the accelerator, um, the better. Uh, and the more space you can create between your um, something that happens and your reaction, turn it into a response. So thanks for having me. For any more information on this sermon or any additional resources, visit us at thrivechurch.co.nz. 